Um, thank you for being here. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the pastors. We're glad that you are here uh, with us uh, this morning. Uh, parents, if you have elementary school age kids that you would like to send to uh, children's time for Aletheia Junior, you may send them to the back and their teachers will be back there to meet them at the back door. Uh, they're not required to, but if that's something you want to do, feel free to send them out. Um, and if this is your first time with us or you haven't had a chance yet, uh, we'd like to give out a free gift to uh, anyone that's here with us. Uh, it's just a scripture journal. It'll have the entire book of Judges in it, all, and then it'll also have blank pages in it so you could take notes. If you would like one of those, just raise one of your, ha uh, your hands. Somebody will come around and give one to you. Uh, that is our free gift to you, no strings attached. We just want you to have the Word of God in your hand and to be able to follow along and take notes uh, if you feel led. Uh, before I start this morning, I just wanted to kind of give you guys an update. Uh, I know a number of you guys have been asking me over this past week about how our church is going to mobilize and help with relief efforts in Southwest Florida. Um, if you are not a part of the church's group me, um, that's where we're doing a lot of communication on what we're doing. So if you want to join that, stop by the welcome desk on your way out this morning, and we'll make sure you get added to the group me uh, so you can get announcements on what we're doing. But basically what we've discovered is that the first 72 hours or so, um, they actually don't want people rushing in to help. Uh, they need to wait for waters to recede. They need to do some things. Uh, guys, there's going to be months and months, sadly, of, of cleanup and work uh, that we can do as a church. We can take trips down there. We can help do things. So there's going to be plenty of opportunities. We will let you guys know this upcoming week with some of our ministry partners through the Florida Baptist Convention and some churches that we know in the Fort Myers area uh, on opportunities that we'll have to go down there and help with cleaning up, uh, helping people rebuild, uh, removing trees, uh, doing remediation work, whatever it may be. But there's going to be months and months of that. So just so you guys know, continue to pray as they uh, get these things kind of sorted out, and we will take trips as we're available. There is a group going down to Tampa today just to simply take supplies, uh, like water and other basic necessities. So we are doing that. But as far as like organized trips down there, we'll have the, that information later this week for you guys. Okay, so moving on. We are looking this morning, as you probably heard Hannah just read to us, uh, the second part of Gideon's story in Judges chapter 6. So we're going to be working through the whole book of Judges uh, this fall and into the winter. And we're looking this morning specifically at the last part of Judges chapter 6 and all of Judges chapter 7. Uh, but I want to give you a, a quick recap of Pastor Daniel's sermon last week, if you weren't here, just so you know kind of what's going on in the timeline of the story of Gideon. You know, what we said when we started this study as a church through the book of Judges is that we were going to see a lot of consistent themes throughout this book. And uh, they are at play again. But one of the things and one of the reasons why we slowed down on the story of Gideon and are going to take our time working through it is that Gideon's story kind of has three parts to it. The first part is him dealing with his own personal idols and the idols of Israel. The second part of his story is going to be what we see this morning, which is dealing with the oppressors in Midian. And the last part of the story next week, and Pastor Theo is going to be preaching that for you, is going to be uh, Gideon kind of dealing with his own personal issues and also with the issues that come with blessing and continuing to lead people to God post-oppression. And so Pastor Theo is going to process through that with us and allow us to see that. But last week, Pastor Daniel did a good job of breaking down this idea of Midian 
was oppressing Israel over and over again, was basically making it impossible for them both economically and agriculturally uh, to reap their harvest. And so whenever the harvest time would, would happen, those east of the Holy Land would come down out of the mountains, come into Israel, and they would attack them. They would burn their crops. They would steal their crops. And so it was making it really, really difficult, Israel, from an economic and survivability standpoint. And it says in the scripture that Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And then, they, then we saw this line that we've seen time and time again in Judges, and it's not going to be the last time we see it. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. We're going to see that over and over and over again as we see this. And so what ends up happening is the angel of the Lord comes to visit Gideon. And it's this really, really beautiful moment because Gideon is actually hiding in a wine press because he's unable to go into the mountains to uh, separate the wheat from the chaff. And so he's hiding in this wine press. And as he's hiding in there, this really, really cool moment of, of, of history occurs where the angel of the Lord appears. And as he's there hiding, the Lord says to, to Gideon, mighty man of valor. He, he titles him a man of valor and then tells him that he's going to save Israel from Midianite oppression. And one of the things Pastor Daniel made sure to point out to us last week is that Gideon at this point in time is the farthest thing from a man of valor that you could possibly have. And yet, God declares this over him. God calls him out and tells him who he's going to make him to be because that's how God operates. And then we see that God promises to be with him. And so Gideon tears down the idols of Baal. They're his own father's idols in the middle of the night. And his own people come against him, and his father says, no, we're not going to attack him. If Baal would contend with what he's done, then let Baal defend himself. And then as Pastor Daniel got to the end of his time last week, we saw that the Midianites and the Amalekites were beginning to surround Israel. And Gideon has sounded the trumpet and the call to battle. And basically, we are at this point where all eyes are on Gideon. Like everyone's attention is now focused on him. How is he going to lead God's people? How is he going to defend them from the the Midianites and the Amalekites? How is he going to deliver them? All eyes are on this guy who just previously was hiding in a wine press because he was so worried about the people he was getting ready to go to war with. And the question that we can ask ourselves or, or what we should be asking ourselves is, is Gideon ready for this? Can Gideon really lead Israel to overthrow Midian? And the the key verse that I want us to hone in on this morning actually comes from something that Pastor Daniel showed us last week. But the the key verse in the entire story of of Gideon comes in Judges chapter 6, verse 16. Let me read that to you. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. You know, last week Daniel said that one of the main reasons that Gideon went to war with the idols of Baal that were in Israel was that he had experienced a transformation where fear of Baal and fear of man had been replaced 
with a fear of God. And that oftentimes in our lives that one of the reasons we struggle with sin, we struggle with maybe habitual issues or idols in our lives, that we, we have various struggles over time is that we have allowed other things to p- take a place of supremacy in our life that they're not meant or designed to hold. And that a proper reverence and understanding of God and his own power and who he is is what is supposed to drive us. And that fear of the Lord leads God's people to always pursue obedience and worship. And that Pastor Daniel even said last week that when fear of God replaces our idols, uh, the fear of our idols, we always end up going to war with our idols because that's what God calls us to do. And we saw last week that this is what had actually started happening to Gideon. And it's going to continue to drive forward the narrative and the story that happened in Israel. And the question you might say is like, well, what would motivate Gideon to that place? Like, why, why would he go from this place where he's hiding in a wine press to, to being able to call Israel to battle and go out against the Midianites? And the answer is what you see happening in this first section is that God comes to him, not Gideon going to him. And this is a consistent theme we see throughout Scripture, is that God is often the initiator of deliverance and salvation. I'm not getting into a soteriological argument with you guys here this morning, because I know some of you guys love to debate that for hours and hours on end. But what I, but I, w- what I will point out to you is that consistently we see in Old Testament narratives that the Israelites are the ones that are obstinate and rebel and walk away from what God has clearly outlined for them to do in Scripture. And once they hit a breaking point, God is the one that comes to them, not the other way around. And so God comes to Gideon. He calls Gideon out and meets him. And then God promises to Gideon that he can trust him because he is going to turn him into a man of valor who's going to use him to deliver Israel from their oppressors. And that promise of God's goodness to him is what motivates Gideon to trust and tear down the Baals in Israel. And this morning what we'll see is that's going to continue to motivate him to go to war, to trust God along quite possibly, and this is saying something because the Bible is full of crazy stories, quite possibly one of the craziest stories inside of all of Scripture. And and then we're going to see how God keeps this promise to Gideon. And so we're going to see three ways this morning that God keeps his promise to be with Gideon from verse 16 of chapter 6. So here's the three things we're going to see this morning as we move through these verses. The first one is that God provides assurance to Gideon. The second one we're going to see is that God forces Gideon to rely on his strength, that not on his own strength, but on God's strength to deliver. And then the last thing we're going to see is that God encourages Gideon in the midst of his weakness. So Hannah read this section for us earlier, but I'm going to read it again just so we have an understanding of of what we're seeing here. But this is a famous passage with the story of the fleece with Gideon. Let me read it to you. It says, then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. 
If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. How many of you guys are familiar with this story, by the way? Yeah, about half of you. This is a famous story. And one of the things I've noticed over time is that the, the focus of that particular story actually tends to get distorted by people. They focus in on um, Gideon asking God, and they'll say, actually, like, Gideon was doing something wrong here. He's putting God to the test. He's, he's, he's testing God, and you should never do this. Don't ever follow Gideon's example. And, I, you know, it's kind of like if you've ever read the story of Jonah. One of the things I love to do is read, like, children's story Bibles. You guys ever noticed, by the way, that, like, they pick the most, like, graphic stories that are actually terrible in Scripture and, like, make them, like, the main point of, like, kids' Bibles? It's like, oh, there was a flood where God destroyed and wiped out the entire race except for like some animals in an ark and Noah and his family it's like but let's draw really cute pictures with it while God destroys everyone right we focus on those things for kids but I always just found that fascinating anyway Jonah is one of those stories where so often the focus becomes Jonah and not what God's doing in the midst of the story of Jonah and I grew up being told in, in, in church, like, oh don't be like Jonah he's disobedient and if you disobey God you'll get eaten by a fish Great thing to tell a kid, by the way. Like, yeah, I want to follow that God, right? Like, if I'm disobedient, I'm going to get eaten by a fish. Like, that is not the point of Jonah at all. As a matter of fact, if you understand Jonah correctly, what we see is God had given Jonah specific instructions to save Nineveh and preach them to repentance. God wanted to save the Ninevites. Jonah is a racist and doesn't want to see them saved and so tries to run away. God wants to save Nineveh so bad that he has Jonah thrown overboard and then sovereignly keeps him alive inside of a fish to spin him back on land so that that guy will go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites so that God can save them. That's the story of Jonah. Not not Jonah's disobedience that is punishment to get eaten by a fish. No, the story of Jonah is that God wanted to save the Ninevites so badly that he allowed Jonah to be swallowed up by a fish. And if you don't believe me, read the last chapter of Jonah. Jonah's mad that they repented. He's he's sitting outside the city sulking because they repented. And that's so that's when we see these stories in the scripture, we need to understand that sometimes the way things have been presented to us are not necessarily what God wanted us to point out and see. And what we see in this story is not an example of Gideon's disobedience or his lack of faith. But what we see is that Gideon's being asked to do something by God, and he believes that God's going to do it, but he wants assurance from God because he he lacks the faith to continue to move forward at, at the point that he's at. Right? Like if you think about it, he lays a piece of wool on the threshing floor, and he says to God, hey, let there be dew on the fleece, but keep the dry, the, the ground dry. And he wakes up the next morning, and normally, if you leave a piece of wool on the ground and it's wet, you would expect the ground to be wet, but guess what? Boom, it's not, right? The fleece is completely wet, ground is dry. 
And he's like, hey, God, let your anger not burn against me. But what you're asking me to do is completely crazy. You're asking me to go to war with these people that we cannot defeat. So I need you to show up and like show me again for sure that you're with me. So he puts the, the wool on the floor again. The wool is dry the next morning, but the, but the floor is wet with dew. Again, both should be wet. They're not. Boom, God shows up. Guess what Gideon knows now? Okay, God is for sure with me. I need to obey. I need to trust what God has called me to do. See, Gideon is hesitant, but he's not unbelieving. And in his hesitancy, instead of faking faith and then not obeying, he instead asks God to assure him that he's going to keep his promise. And what I want you to see is that as Gideon wants assurance of God's help, God actually graciously gives it to him. It's easy to focus in on Gideon here and miss the grace and the compassion and the mercy that God displays here in this, in this section. Like this, this is who the God of the Bible is. He's not some angry, vengeful, wrathful God who can't wait to bring punishment on people at all times. No, actually, when, especially when he's dealing with his people, he's gentle, he's lowly, he's compassionate, and he's merciful. And so often I think, especially if you've been a Christian for a long period of time, or maybe you're not a Christian here this morning, but you grew up in the church, we tend to kind of have this view of God as being this all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipotent being who can't wait to discipline us or punish us whenever we we're out of step. Instead of the merciful and compassionate and benevolent God that he presents himself to be inside of scripture. He's a God who operates out of a posture of compassion and mercy towards his own, not anger and malicious control. You know, there's this quote in one of the commentaries I've been reading as we've been working through Judges that I, I thought was just super powerful. Dale Ralph, Dale Ralph Davis says it this way. He says, God is not ashamed to stoop down and reassure us in our fears. God loves to remind his people that he is with them. And that's not just Gideon. That's just not some like ethereal concept that we read in the narrative of the Old Testament. But if you are a disciple and follower of Jesus here this morning, this goes for you as well. Like God actually loves you. He actually does care about you. He actually is interested in reminding you that he is with you and for you. Now, don't leave here this morning and say like, well, Kevin, Pastor Kevin said that God is for me and I wanted a new BMW and God didn't show up. It's not what I'm saying. No, what I am saying though is that God is with you as he sanctifies you and draws you closer to him. And this means that in the midst of blessing or suffering, he is present and will walk through it with you. 
and will lead you through it. The same way, by the way, he's getting ready to call Gideon into something that is not easy to walk through, but is promising his presence as he does so. So the question is, is what is God asking you to do, and how have you responded to it? Maybe he's asked you to go to war with idols, like Pastor Daniel pointed out last week. Maybe there's something in your life and it seems impossible or too hard to go to battle with, to put to death, to walk in obedience, to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life, to kill it. You know that God actually gives us the exact same assurance that he's with us that he did to Gideon? In multiple places in Scripture. But one of my favorites is in Romans chapter 8. Starting at verse 26, the Apostle Paul says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our what? Weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see the, see the promise that Paul says that God gives to us there? That if you're a disciple and a follower of Jesus, you've been given the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is residing inside of you. And that pledge, that seal, that promise of the Holy Spirit that resides inside of you, he's doing all sorts of things. One of them is, anybody in here, I've never asked this question to somebody and gotten an affirmative answer. I'm like, anybody in here ever feel like they pray enough? I've never gotten someone that, yeah, I'm the best prayer on the planet. Like, I've met Christians like, and I've seen their prayer life. Like, they'll pray for like five hours a day. And then I'll ask them like, so how's your prayer life? Like, I can do more. I'm like, okay. So you're super Christian and the rest of us are not good enough <laughs> to meet your standard. And yet still, you feel like you don't talk to God enough. And yet the promise of God in scripture is here. It's like, hey, even when you're not praying like you're supposed to, guess who is? The Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf. Because God is merciful and compassionate and with us. And then I love this next part, right? He says, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's a fancy way of saying, when God calls you to be a disciple of Jesus, he's going to make you more like Jesus. Not, he might want you to be like Jesus. No, he will conform you into the image of Jesus. It's a promise. And there's all sorts of things there that are talked about in the past tense that aren't necessarily in the past tense yet. And Pastor Daniel did a good job of talking about this last week. It's one of the reasons why I don't love to get into soteriological debates with people because when we start talking about God's foreknowledge and predestination, whatever else, I'm like, look, 
God is transcendent and outside of time, space, and matter. So this is far more complicated than terms like election and predestination. It's like, like, so like, well, do you think God has elected us and called us? Yes, I do. And I also think it's even more complicated than that, but that's all we can handle. Because, you know, he's God and you're not. Like Pastor Daniel said last week, if you think about it long enough, and I, and I, and I've, I think I've talked to enough math people that understand the, the term infinity enough to say that I'm right on this. Like things for God are, when they're occurring here, have occurred in eternity past, eternity present, and eternity future. And if you're like, I can't grasp that, good, you should be able to. You're not God. There's something beautiful about the mysteriousness of God and knowing this. But as he says to us in Romans chapter 8, he says that we're called, justified, and glorified. If you're a Christian here this morning, two of those things actually have occurred for you already, but one of them is going to happen in the future. But the promise of God is that it's already occurred. Because that's how God operates, and he always brings his own to him. And so maybe last week after Pastor Daniel's sermon, you felt some conviction, and you're like, I need to go to war with idols. And then, as so often happens with us, we realize, like, hey, actually going to war with idols is really hard. Okay. Like, if it was easy, we would all just do it, right? We'd all just put sin to death, and Jesus probably wouldn't have needed to die for our sins on the cross, right? We'd all be happy. But going to war with the flesh and going to war with sin and idols is not an easy task, and yet God has assured us that he's with us. And sometimes we need assurance just like Gideon does. And when we need that assurance, we need to go to God and we need to go to his word so that we're reminded that he will do it. Now, not only does God assure Gideon and us that he will be with us as we go to war with our idols, but he also loves to show off his power as he delivers us from those idols and oppression, which leads us into the next part of the story. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Anybody notice something already starting to get kind of fishy about this story? All right, let's keep going. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set, him, set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and the rest give, and I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let the others go, every man to his home. 
So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, this is a crazy story, right? Like, it's not, it, and it's not like, one of the things I love is like, sometimes you'll read like in um, uh, like uh, historian accounts will say, oh, this seems to be like a story that was like stolen from like the Greek idea of the 300. And it's like, well, not really. Because when you read the Greek story of the 300, right, the Spartans were like some amazing warriors who held out against the Persians and were awesome. This story is like, God's like, yeah, you guys are too weak and I got to make sure you know you weren't cool. And that you're not powerful and you can't do anything. And as we look at this, it's like, okay, here you have the Israelites who are weak, oppressed, and afraid. And then you have Gideon who finally tears down the idols of Baal. He blows the trumpet to call the Israelites to battle. 32,000 of them show up and you're like, oh, wow, okay. Like Gideon's this great like motivator and like commander and all these people are ready to go to battle with him. So 32,000 show up and God's like, okay, no, that's not, that's not gonna work for me. So ask them who's afraid and let those people go home. And over two thirds of them are like, I'm out. Like, not interested. We showed up, but, like, if you're going to ask us if we really want to go to war, we're not interested. And so two-thirds of them leave, and there's 10,000 left. And you think, okay, like, that, that kind of makes your point, God. Like, cool. And God's like, still too many. He's like, take them down to the water, and let, 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 me, let me separate those that are actually going to go from, from the rest of them. And so he comes up with some kind of weird way to tell. And if they go down, they bring the water up with their hands and then lick it out of their hands like they're a dog. Those are the 300 that end up doing that. And those are the ones that are going to war. And the other 9,700 get sent home. And so here, here you have right the angel of the Lord showing up to fearful Gideon saying, hey, you got to go to war. You got to fight. I'm going to call the armies with you. I'm with you. I got your back. And then he sends all of his men home. Right? So at this point, you're like, what is Gideon probably thinking at this point? And yet, what we need to see in this is that God, is that God loves to choose the weak to make a point and remind his people that he is the one who delivers, not them. This is God's consistent way of doing things. Right? If you go back, to the story of Genesis, God saved the Israelites through a brother that had been sold into slavery in Egypt. He used the weak to save the rest. He later delivered Israel from Egypt with no army whatsoever. Loves to show off. Once they entered the Holy Land, one of the strongest fortified cities in that area was a city called Jericho. God gave that city over to them, not through battle, but through simply walking around the outside, the outskirts of the city for seven days and blowing trumpets and making loud noise. See, so often, even when we might, from a biblical perspective, look at our sin, look at our idols, want to respond to them in the way that Pastor Daniel encouraged us to last week, so often we think once we need to do that, that we need power, money, celebrity, or tools to accomplish what God has laid before us. 
Christians love that. Hey, this program, it's the best. Have you seen that? Right, this ministry is great. I mean, guys, this city has made poor Tim Tebow into being like Jesus 2.0. Don't get me wrong, I love Tim. Right, it's cool. I black with John 3.16 on it. Like, amen. He's got the same Holy Spirit residing in him that you do. And God can use you just as much, if not more so, than him. See, because the consistent story of Scripture is that God delights in a different way. He loves to promise to deliver his people. And then he loves to take those same people to a point where they cannot deliver themselves. And he does that to make sure that they know where that deliverance has come from. And then he proceeds to deliver his people and encourage them along the way. That's what God does. It's the way he operates. If you don't like that, tough, you're not God. I would actually go so far as to say as an act of mercy of God to bring us low so that we're reminded of our place in the pecking order of creation. And God does the same here with Israel to remind Gideon, hey man, I know you walked out in the middle of the night and tore down those idols of Baal and you're starting to feel really full of yourself and then you blew that trumpet and 32,000 people showed up and you're like, man, I'm something. Like I, I am some kind of judge for the people of Israel. And God in his mercy sends over 20, excuse me, over 30,000 of them back home so that Gideon will know it's not about him, but about Yahweh who's going to deliver them. Which leads us to our third point, which is this, that once Gideon is brought to that point of weakness with the rest of the Israelites, God continues to encourage him in that. Right, look at starting in verse 9. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servants to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. Right. So God, God immediately knows that once these men have been sent home, Gideon went from being really, really inflated with his ego to what? Deflated and scared. And so God's like, all right, hold on. I'm going to need you to do something with these 300 men. So go down to the camp and sit outside. I've got something to show you. And look what happens. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. Behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given, in, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. All right, so God's like, all right, I know you're worried. Let me send you down into the camp so you can hear the morale of the troops in the camp of Midian. And he goes down there, and what does he find out? He overhears a conversation that Midian 
the Midianites have had a dream that God's going to defeat them. Right? He's not hearing it from another Israelite. He's not hearing it from some prophet. No, he's hearing it from his enemies. And look at Gideon's response. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. God comes back to encourage Gideon again and to assure him that he is going to deliver. And look at Gideon's response. It's twofold. It starts with worship. He, he's thankful and he praises God for what he's about to do. And then the second step is obedience. He divides the men, he tells them the plan, and look at what happens. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerera as far as the border of Abel, Mahaloh, by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. God delivers like he promised. And he does so by having the Midianites attack one another and creating confusion in their camp in the middle of the night with 300 men from Israel. You know, it doesn't even say that the Israelites put a sword to any of the Midianites there. It just says that they banged some jars, blew some trumpets, and made a bunch of noise. And that in the confusion and the fervor, the Midianites were defeated. And as they fled, then Israel began to pursue them and run after them. Guys, the story of Gideon is a story of a God who delivers on his promises. And that same God is working today in his church. Delivering his people so that they might worship him and obey him just like Gideon did. You know, the word gospel means good news. And you might have heard in the church over the years people say like, the gospel, right? This, we're, we're about the gospel, right? It just means good news. That's what it means. But the reason why Christians for years have said that the story of Jesus Christ and what he has done is good news is because there's actually bad news beforehand. And there's no need for good news if there's no bad news. 
And the bad news is this. Every one of us in this room is a broken, rebellious sinner who cannot save themselves. There's your Hallmark moment for the morning. Right? Like I told you guys a couple weeks ago when I used that example from the American Humanist Association that said that they rejected Scripture because God seems to be to allow evil to happen on those that are innocent and, and, and not guilty. And I said, well, that, that's a cool argument if the Bible assumes that mankind is innocent and not guilty, but it doesn't. And the Bible says that all are born in sin and in rebellion towards God. And parents of young children have some hands-on experience where they actually might even believe that a little more than those of us who just read it in the Scripture. And what that leads to is obstinance, oppression, slavery, to the point where Scripture actually says those who are not in Christ are enemies of God. And yet, the Scriptures teach us that God chose weakness and folly to deliver us from bondage to sin and death. The same way that the story of Gideon sending home 31,700 men is a story of weakness and folly. And yet, the good news is that God still delivered. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with me if you have your Bible. That's where we're going to finish this morning. Starting in verse 18. Here's what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth when talking about the good news of what Christ has done. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Let me translate that for you. To those who don't believe and trust in Jesus, the story of what Christ has done sounds ludicrous to them. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. And Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, it pleases God to save us through the folly of the gospel. A first century Nazarene carpenter who also is the son of God in the flesh, who willingly gave his life to pay for the penalty of our sin and rebellion and give to us his righteousness. That's what occurred. And after Christ was placed on the cross, he was crucified he was dead and he was buried for three days. And on the third day, he rose from the dead to show 
that God had power over sin, death, and the rebellion of man. And that story is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who, of us who believe and have trusted in Christ, it is the power and wisdom of God because God has kept his promise to his people. Guys, God has kept that promise and he will continue to keep that promise. And I want you to notice that after Paul has just said this, after he's just got done saying, hey, in the weakness and folly, God will show up. He tells, us to, he tells the church at Corinth to respond. And he calls us to respond to God's deliverance much the same way that Gideon responds. Look at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see that? In the same way that God did not want Gideon to boast in his power to deliver Israel, God also saved us in such a way that we wouldn't boast in our own power, but in his. And look at what he says. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Guys, once Gideon goes to battle, they boast in the name of the Lord because they know it is him who has delivered them. And what we are going to do for as long as God will have us gather as a church here in Gainesville, Florida, we're going to do one thing. We're going to continue to boast in the Lord because he's the only one worth boasting in. And, you know, I've, I've said it multiple times to you guys, and I'll continue to say it as long as the Lord will allow me. We are about one thing here, and that's making much of Jesus. Everything else is a side, side, side product. It's like, you guys have great music. Cool, we're here to make much of Jesus. I like that we, we go through books of the Bible together because we're here to make much of Jesus. I love the community at Aletheia Church. We're here to make much of Jesus. And making much of Jesus is a daily endeavor for us where we recognize our brokenness, where we rest in the promises of God to us in Christ that we are saved, forgiven, redeemed, and loved, and then we walk out preaching the good news that God has delivered us again and again so that we might walk forward in obedience.